After that lesson, I skipped the discussion of the cross. The next lesson in that series was Up From the Grave He Arose when we studied about the wonderful resurrection of Jesus Christ when he rose from the dead. Let's first of all begin by looking at chapter 19 and let's look at verses 16 through 18. John witnessed and revealed, Then he, that is Pilate, delivered him, that is Jesus, to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. There are several ways in which we could approach this. The one that I have chosen this morning is to take the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and to parallel them. As you take a parallel, you will find all the details that Scripture records about what happened on the cross. Sometimes Matthew includes something that Mark, Luke, and John does not. Sometimes Mark and John includes things that Matthew does not. And so you have to take them all together to get a full picture of what happened. So here's what happened. 9 o'clock in the morning. It's about 9.30 right now. I want you to think early in the morning at the third hour. Mark says in Mark 15 verse 25, Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. They began counting their time of the day at 6 o'clock in the morning. Being the third hour meant about 9 o'clock. Oh, there's so much you could talk about. You could talk about Jesus' arrest, you could talk about his trial, and you could talk about how weary he must have been. Having borne that cross, having taken it all the way to Golgotha. One of the first things that you will notice after Jesus is put up on that cross is the first thing that he says. And in Luke chapter 23 verse 34 then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I cannot fathom the way Jesus had been treated to look down upon those people who put him on the cross and say, Father, forgive them, but that's who he was. Jesus had compassion on ignorant people. And certainly these people were ignorant. When did God forgive these people? Did he forgive them immediately? Oh, no, no, he didn't do that. How do I know? Because in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, and by the way, if you don't know it, today is the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, Peter, standing up with the eleven, preached a lesson based upon the prophecy of the coming of Christ and all the details surrounding that. He concludes in verse 36, 
This same Jesus God has made both Lord and Christ. He said, you by lawless hands have crucified and slain. He indicts them. He provides for them information, education, so they're no longer ignorant. They know whom they have crucified. And rather than saying you were pardoned there at the cross, he says to them, after they ask, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Oh, yeah. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Okay, God's going to provide men to tell them what they did and the way for them to be forgiven. The third thing that you observe evidently happening fairly soon after Jesus was put on the cross was soldiers gambling for his clothing. In John 19, verses 23 and 24, we read, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam and woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose shall it be? And the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. It's hard for us to imagine, but clothing was an extremely valuable item in the first century. You didn't do like many of us do. We, we take our clothing, we put it in boxes, we put it in closets, and finally after about 25 years we take it somewhere and try to find someone to donate it to. Now every article of clothing was valuable, and if a man was dying... His clothes was valuable. And so each of those four soldiers who were there decided, I'll take this, you take that. But there was one item that was extremely valuable. That was his tunic. It was made out of one piece of cloth. Sewn from the top to the bottom. Very valuable. And they, they said, we don't want to tear this. Obviously, if we tear it into four parts, it's not going to be worth as much. Let's cast lots for it. Let's gamble for it. And they did those things. The third thing that you observe, which also evidently began very early after Jesus was placed on the cross, was the mockings. The mockings came from the rulers, that is the chief priest, the Sanhedrin. It came from the soldiers and even the robbers. Listen to the parallel accounts in Luke 23. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers sneered saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the chosen of God, the soldiers also mocked him coming and offering him sour wine. I want you to notice the people are observing what's going on. They're standing back. But these chief priests, they're taking great pleasure and delight 
making fun of Jesus. So are the soldiers. Mark's account in chapter 15 says, And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. Likewise, a chief priest also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, and notice carefully the way they phrase it, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Don't you imagine that there was the ability of Jesus to pull his hands off of that cross, step down off of that cross, and destroy that miserable group of men screaming these taunts at him. But that's not who Jesus was. That's not the way he dealt with men. Oh, you know, if you listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father, despising the shame. He didn't like it. He endured it. It was humiliating, and yet he did. Of the two men who were crucified with Jesus, one of them expressed penitence. He recognized he was there because he deserved to be there. Likewise, he recognized that Jesus did not deserve to be there. Luke 23, verse 40 says, But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? Seeing you are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due of our deeds, due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom." Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, but we hear so much clamoring about, well, I want to be saved like the thief on the cross. He wasn't baptized, so I don't have to be baptized. Oh, foolish one. First of all, he may have been baptized Neither you or I know that. We do know that here he addresses Jesus as Lord. He knows that Jesus has a kingdom. Jesus had been preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 3. We know that not only did John the Baptist baptize, but Jesus himself Baptized, though he didn't do it, but his disciples, John, has already recorded that. 
But I think you need to recognize that this man was born and he died under the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant did not have as one of its obligations to be baptized for the remission of sins. Here's a man who was penitent, who was sorry because of what he had done and he recognized what he deserved and he expressed that penitence to the Lord and Jesus told him, you're going to be with me today in the kingdom or in paradise. The next thing is that Jesus makes provision for his mother. We learn from John 19, verse 25, and there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Now you could spend a lot of time speculating about a lot of things. Is Joseph dead? Well, he's no longer in the picture. Very possibly, given age, he could have been dead. What about the brothers of Jesus? Where are they? You remember when we studied John 7 and Jesus going up to the Feast of Tabernacles and they were saying, you need to go up. And it says that John records that even his brothers did not believe in him. Jesus is not going to entrust his mother to those brothers at this point. But he is going to look down and there's four women there at the foot of the cross and John is there too. John is at the foot of the cross. He is a witness of these things. And Jesus tells her, Woman, behold your son. The disciple John, behold your mother. Jesus is not going to leave this world without having provision made for his mother to be taken care of. Oh, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. In fact, you study... Matthew and Mark's account, Matthew 15, Mark 7. Honor your father and your mother, which means to make sure they're provided for. Jesus did that. But now we come to 12 o'clock noon. And no, it's not 12 o'clock yet. Luke 23, verse 44. Now about the sixth hour... And there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. That the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. For three hours now the sun is not going to shine. It's darkened. This is not an eclipse. It doesn't last three hours. This lasts three hours. What a dark day in history when the Son of God was put on a cross and crucified. 
Well, now there's several things that are going to take place evidently right here at the ninth hour, which is about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. One of the first is Jesus crying out, Mark 15, verse 34, And at the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark even gives us the Aramaic words, Eloi, Eloi. That comes from Psalms 22, verse 1. And it reflects the weight and the pressure that takes place when you look and see the Son of God bearing the sins of many. In John 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. Every detail, every prophecy from the Old Testament looking forward to the coming of Christ and the sufferings that he would endure was fulfilled in detail. Jesus said, I thirst. It was given him and he took it. Luke 23, verse 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend or commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last Father, and your hands I commit my spirit. Solomon tells us that the, earth, the body returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. The body of Jesus was placed in that tomb, but his spirit went to paradise. And Jesus committed his spirit to God. Now with those events in mind, I want to point out to you that besides what you have just heard that happened on the cross, listen as Matthew records other events that take place at this same time. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. And the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, 
they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. Earthquakes, rocks split, people coming out of their graves, the temple curtain being torn in two. This is no ordinary event. God's power is being manifested as Jesus' spirit leaves the body. Now I ask the question, Why would anyone go through such agony willingly? Why would Jesus suffer all of this on the cross? Listen to John 15 verse 13. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. He gave of everything. There's no greater gift or sacrifice that one can give than his whole self. And that's what Jesus gave. John 10, 17, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus said, I give it because you're my friends, because I want to give it, but I also give it because that's what God told me I need to do. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good man would someone even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just like those people clamoring at Jesus while he was on the cross, you and I don't deserve God's mercy and grace, but... He loved us enough to give it. And John 5 verse 21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took our place on the cross. He paid the penalty for us. He knew there was no other way. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. And Peter would tell us in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, that what you and I were redeemed with was not the silver and the gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Now for just a second or two, I want to talk about for whom did Jesus do this? I'm going to tell you how I feel, and I'm assuming that you feel pretty much the same way. Why me? I'm not worthy. I've been an awful person in my life. I've made so many bad choices. Why would God do this for me? Why would Jesus lay down his life for me? Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. 
of whom I am chief. How be it, or however, for this reason I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul said, I'm standing as a chief of sinners, but he says, I'm also first in the sense that you look at me, and if God can save me, he definitely can save you. I may not deserve it. I may not be worthy of it. Nevertheless, God did it for me. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Hebrews 2 verse 9 said that he, by the grace of God, might taste of death for everyone. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 3 and 4, he said, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. But you say, but that's generic. That's everybody. But does God care about me Individually, me personally, yes, he does. Jesus used an illustration in Matthew chapter 10. He said, do you not sell two sparrows for a copper coin? He said, yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, for you are more value than many sparrows. God cares about the birds but he cares much more for you. Matthew 18, verses 12 and 13, he talks about having a hundred sheep and just one of them going astray. In our eyes today, sometimes we say, well, that's just one. We just lost one. We still have 99. And no, he goes for that one. You go to passages like Luke 19 and you see a little man in a tree by the name of Zacchaeus. And what does Jesus do? He stops and he says, This man is also a son of Abraham. He said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Every one of us is lost and God cares about every one of us individually. The six hours of suffering by our Savior was a very meaningful time and event. It's a very precious thought to think about what Peter says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. You see Jesus on that cross, but you need to see yourself deserving to be there. When you see the stripes on his back, you need to see those stripes were meant for me. I cannot help but think of the song that we sing. I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given me? If you're not a Christian here this morning, Jesus paid it all.
He gave the supreme sacrifice. What does He ask from you? What does He want from you? He wants you to believe that He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. He wants you to change your life, repent of your sins. He wants you to confess Him, to say, I believe that He's the Son of God, and He wants you to be baptized for the remission of sins. How do I know that? Because when He sent His apostles out in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, Luke chapter 24, He said, you go out and you preach repentance, faith, and baptism. You know what's so sad is some of the Lord's closest followers were not sitting at the foot of the cross. They ran. They looked at their own selves. Some of them afterwards grieved deeply for it. Where are you this morning? Are you sitting at the foot of the cross appreciative for what Jesus did for you. This morning, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we beg you to come as together we stand and sing.